Welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Hello. Sophie De Benedetto. Hello. And our special guest, Lars Wiekman. Hello. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. So Lars, uh, we're glad you could come on and join us. Uh, this is a fun topic and discussion because, uh, so what we want to talk about is this idea of multi-tenant databases. And I have dealt with these in different frameworks like Rails. Uh, I've dealt with this situation. I've dealt with different companies where we're trying to attack the problem in different ways. And you did this awesome three-part blog series as you're kind of documenting as you're exploring this. So I'd love to kind of hear about your learnings and particularly of interest to us is what you learned you didn't want to do along the way, you know, to help share that knowledge with us so we can, uh, you know, stand on your shoulders in a little bit in this little area. So first of all, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you work, uh, what kind of problems you're solving, anything like that. Yeah, I um, live in Sweden and I work for, uh, for myself. I'm a freelance developer. And consultant. Uh, I started this particular thing for uh, my own side project in which I was using Elixir before I had the opportunity to use Elixir for client work. Uh, and it's a Phoenix project, pretty standard CRUD app. Um, but I'm in the EU and I was thinking a lot about GDPR and the target businesses uh, for this application would be heavily uh, reliant on living up to the uh, GDPR and being compliant. And that is really simplified if, it, if you make it easy for yourself to remove customer data in one sweeping motion. If the customer says, we want all our data uh, and then remove it, if you can dump an entire database just for them and then wipe it, uh, that simplifies things a lot. And that's what led me down this hole uh, and along this path. That's an interesting topic just to realize that, yes, uh, legal, uh, the, the legal environment shapes the types of solutions that we need to pursue sometimes. It's not, we're not choosing something strictly because it's like, oh, I think this is the best technical solution. But it's like, given this climate, this is the best technical solution. Oh, that, that's interesting that GDPR was uh, a motivation there. I hadn't realized that. Yeah. Also, I've uh, worked in similar systems to the one I'm trying to build where the data is uh, very, very interleaved and uh, you'll find media for one client along with media from another client, which means uh, when it comes time for a GDPR request, you need to pick out all the correct data. Uh, and I was going for something where you have a simple, you have a database per customer and you have a storage bucket per customer or a storage folder per customer. So anytime you get one of those big requests, you can just bundle it up and uh, get rid of it or pass it to them. Uh, and that 
requires being able to run multiple databases in Ecto. And I hadn't looked into it. I hadn't seen it before. And I went into the docs and there's, there's a few interesting things to find there. So first, maybe we could just kind of describe, you, you mentioned it there a little bit, like what is a multi-tenant DB? Uh, so like it's the, you're kind of describing it there, like as I understand it, right? I have uh, a, a software, like maybe software as a service, and I have multiple customers and I want to keep and isolate all of the data for one customer into its own database. So there is no sharing of two customers in the same database. Is that like the idea? Yeah, that's the basic idea. Uh, so when a new customer signs up or if every user for some reason should be fairly isolated, um, there can be a point to having a database per, per customer or per user. Yeah, it's kind of an incredibly nice building block for SaaS generally. I think it kind of depends on the solution or the, the type of service you have, right? Because that might not be an appropriate situation if the service I have has lots of like, you know, tens of thousands of individual users and I'm not dealing with like uh, a large company. If I'm dealing with a company that is my customer and I might have thousands of customer, thousands, thousands of users under a customer, then that would make more sense perhaps. Yeah, it's a fair point. So I think it's I think it's helpful to understand when this might be a good solution and when it might not. Yeah. What do you guys think? It's incredibly inconvenient whenever you need to join across several customers or when you need to aggregate data across customers. If interaction between customers or between users is central to what you're building, uh, then this is the wrong thing <laughs> in most cases. But multi-tenancy mostly shines in cases like, oh, every user or every company that signs up for this service should have their own landing page, their own data sets. Uh, there's basically nothing shared, or maybe we share some statistics, but maybe we need to aggregate those first. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, but it does not uh, work well for, for anything where you need to join across, across the tenants. Um, or yeah, so like if you had a, if you had a SaaS ERP or CRM system, um, those are those are solid uh, choices, I think, for multi-tenancy. Yeah, I've worked at a uh, one of the places uh, I've, in my professional history uh, was in like the education space. So their customer was a you know a uh, like a higher education institution, like an entire institution, right? So that would make a lot of sense for this kind of situation where they have all of the faculty and all the students, and you want to have everything related to that institution completely isolated from another institution. Where it wouldn't make sense, like if it's a picture sharing website, you know, like, I'm, like that's the purpose of it, it's just to have lots of individual users and I'm, you know, it's like a, the new, you know, an Instagram clone, right? You're wanting to be crossing those boundaries all the time. Yeah, uh, I've worked a lot of in, in education, which uh, has a lot of, this multi-tenant sort of uh, need because me most services are directed at a set of schools or a set of preschools or that sort of thing. And then every school being a tenant makes sense generally. All right. So I think we've covered the, like, <clears throat> the problem and how I might recognize if I have this need, if it would be appropriate for my situation. So maybe you could jump in and kind of give us a, an idea of how you got started with this. Like you said, you needed multiple databases in Ecto. 
So what did you do? What, how did you figure and approach that? Yeah. I, since I knew I was building something where I, in my design phase, realized I wanted multiple databases and I hadn't worked enough with Ecto to know if that was trivial or straightforward or uh, what kind of challenge I had ahead of me. Um, but uh, when I started looking at working with Ecto, I realized there was some magic hiding in the repo module that that's generally generated when you set up a Phoenix project. Uh, the repo module sets up your connection and uh, manages your connection pooling and all that sort of thing. And when you set it up, you also set up which database name that repo is for, which sort of trips up the whole idea of selecting which database. And so then I had to think, okay, can I just change what database it's pointing at? That seems unlikely. And then I had to dive into the docs. Uh, searching through the docs, I found um, the guide for dynamic repos. And from reading, like, yeah, this, this looks like what I need. Um, it allows you to start a repo on demand. So, you, for example, I could, whenever I get a request, spin up a repo, perform queries, send the results back. Um, and I, at the time, I can just check, okay, which customer would this be? Because I also have to have a central database or some sort source of truth to which tenant is this, uh, which database should I connect to? So one central repo, uh, usually a separate, it's modeled entirely differently from, uh, from my customer or tenants. So when I get a connection, I would check, okay, which customer is this for? And then I would uh, set up a dynamic repo and I cover how to do this in the first part. Um, but it has a lot of little quirks and edge cases and hidden complexities that I wasn't quite expecting, uh, but they're workable. Uh, and it really, it does what you needed to do if you need to connect to multiple databases um, in a, that are identical, that follow the same repo model and have the same kind of schemas, that sort of thing. Um, but you encounter things like uh, adapters. <laughs> uh, you, you encounter things like storage up, which is part of Ecto adapter storage and things that are double underscored, which as a Python developer sounded like internals to me. <laughs> uh, so I had some run-ins with uh, Jose in the issues while trying to figure out if I was doing things correctly. It was very helpful. Um, and I figured while I'm doing this, while I'm figuring out how to do this, I might as well document it. So that's the, that's the reason for the blog posts. And then one of the one of the issues that came with the dynamic repos was uh, you kind of have issues figuring out how to scale connections sort of reasonably per customer. Is that right? Yeah, that's one part. Um, migrations is another headache, uh, or it's not incredibly complex, but you need to figure out how to manage your your migrations. Uh, you also need to handle, and that's what I tried to cover in the in the second part handling migrations and managing multiple connection pools 
because while you can start a dynamic repo, anytime you get a request, if you have a high volume of requests, you probably want to keep a connection pool rather than starting single uh, single connection uh, pools on demand. So you might want to keep a list. Okay, for this customer, we have this pool ready. Otherwise, start it. And then you need to start to consider, do I want to keep all of these around all the time? Do I want to start to time them out? Do I want to expire them? Uh, and suddenly you have caching, basically. So cache expirations. Uh, so all of a sudden, you're at the hardest problem in computer science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the most annoying ones at the very least. Um, so yeah, I cover some of that in part two uh, when I really got into, <laughs> got my hands dirty and got going with this. So it does cover everything I needed and uh, that most people would probably need along with making testing work. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, how testing and the Ecto Sandbox works. Pretty familiar. But uh, maybe you could still kind of help give a, a mental picture for that. Yeah. So suffice to say, it's it doesn't work from scratch with uh, dynamic repos because it's not supposed to. It's it, it makes some assumptions to simplify your uh, um, the way you use the sandbox and to make sure that your tests are fast and still go through Ecto as they should. And it's perfectly uh, doable to set up the sandbox for testing dynamic repos, but it's there was some swearing involved. Uh, there was a lot of work to uh, to figure out what what it had to do because I I hadn't really had to do anything special with the sandbox before. It usually just works, but in this case, suddenly you're dealing with several repos and starting them up when necessary and um yeah uh, that means you you end up running into some of the corners of the sandbox rather quickly i do think uh appreciating how it how a technical decision impacts um testing is a, a big consideration that sometimes we don't consider you know like when you're first looking at like how can i make this work we don't think well how can i make this testable and so that that's an interesting consideration like that just that you know that that I hadn't thought about the way Ecto Sandbox works with its connections being uh, having an impact in like the dynamic repos because I've I've never actually experimented and used dynamic repos. I didn't until your article. I didn't know that that was a feature that Ecto repo had. So that's really cool. But yeah, so like, so I'd love to hear any more you have to share about that. Yeah, right now I feel like most of it is is slowly fading from my mind because I haven't been working with Ecto for a while. But what I mostly remember was that um, you need to be very particular about how you access the sandbox and how you how you set things up. Once you get the setup correct, uh, it's perfectly perfectly fine to test. But you need to you need a basic understanding of how the sandbox works, and you need to uh, you need to read up on that. And uh, I had not, uh, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't worked with the sandbox in that previously. Things like uh, when you're setting up for working with uh, 
I don't exactly recall what corner of this it was, but if you look at the second part of the of the blog posts, you'll see that I set up a pool size of two. Because if you don't set up a pool size of two, I, if I recall correctly, you'll end up with a deadlock. Because of the migrations and, you run, I believe. Yeah, I believe that's the case. Um, and that's also like testing migrations. Uh, migrations is a good thing to come back to. That was uh, one of the parts where Jose guided me in that migrations are usually scripts outside of your code base. Uh, often they live in the priv directory. Um, but if you're starting a customer database dynamically inside your application, such as, oh, a customer signed up, I better create a database for them. How do you run your migrations? They're not compiled in. They're EXS scripts. They're outside. <laughs> you left them behind. Um, of course, you could shell out to them if you deployed along with those. But I uh, didn't feel like that was a good solution. And uh, Jose's recommendation was uh, add your migrations to the application code. And when I thought about it, yeah, that makes sense. They're part of the application now um, because they need to run at runtime. I can't just run them at deploy time because any new um, tenant I set up needs all the migrations run to be up to speed. So that was that was a whole thing. But in the end, uh, for my purposes, I, uh, as you might have seen in part three, I didn't actually end up using dynamic repos. And that is uh, a great... Uh... I think it's a great to acknowledge that we learn something in the process. We do a deep dive and we realize this may not be quite the solution I need or want. So I would love to hear about uh, what you ended up settling on. And now that that's because you're at the time you wrote this article, it's been a little time now. I'd love to hear how that's gone. You know, like after I've seen it in production, are, are there any uh, takeaway messages I can still get from that now? Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. JSRemoteConf.com. Yeah. yeah the, uh, the whole, have it, having used it in anger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I haven't actually deployed the, the solution uh, to full production yet, uh, but I have worked with it significant, significantly since this. And what I found when working with the dynamic repos is that I could either build it in a clever and fragile way where, oh, you don't really need to think about the fact that you're working with dynamic repos. I'll just set up so you have the right repo when you get the request, but it would break if you cross the process boundary. So suddenly you'd have real potential for issues. Um, or I could build it in a way where you would have to explicitly say, I'm going to use this tenant on every single query. Uh, and I 
tended toward that solution. Um, but I also felt like this whole this whole caching and um, keeping all the connection pools in memory and that was getting a little bit complicated. So I wanted to see what my options were and if there were any options I was missing. And then I stumbled over a part of the Ecto docs, which I had entirely missed, which was their guide to multi-tenancy with query prefixes. <laughs> um, and that was a bit of a facepalm. Uh, felt like, oh, I've been wasting my time uh, entirely. But that's not actually, that ended up thankfully not being true. Um, the query prefixes is a good solution to my problem. Uh, it, in Postgres specifically, it uses schemas to not quite give you separate databases, but still at, at its core, it's, it's separate databases. Um, they're in the same database, but they're in different schemas. And that's a distinction that I think mostly Postgres makes. Uh, I think if you're trying to do this with MySQL, you would end up with different databases, probably with named prefixing instead. But this is a feature of Ecto where you can just pass a prefix to, to any query to, um, um, to make the query against that specific database or tenant. Um, but many of the things I learned setting up dynamic repos still apply because you still need migrations at, uh, tenant at the time of creating the tenant. You also uh, need to actually call out to Postgres with, with some raw SQL to create the schemas because Ecto doesn't do that for you. Um, so. This ended up being a much more lightweight solution because I can still rely on the same connection pool. Um, for Postgres, this is fine. Uh, I'm not sure what it will do for MySQL. Uh, maybe everything will be in the same database and they will just be name prefixed. I'm not sure. Uh, but for Postgres, um, this means one connection pool, um, multiple tenants, which is ideal for my use case. Uh, migrations still need to be part of your application. Uh, testing still needs some consideration, but generally it's, it's a simpler solution. And it still means that we need to pass a prefix anytime we, um, we make a query. This can, of course, be encapsulated in different ways, but most of them would be more fragile than just passing the prefix. I believe I've since actually also added some uh, some code that can uh, throw a nice little error if I don't pass a prefix, just to catch catch that corner case. Uh, so prefixes, it's a, it's a good feature. Uh, dynamic repos is not a bad feature. It's a necessary feature. Uh, if you're working with multiple, actual multiple databases, um, it's, it is what you've got. And it's a good solution for an annoying uh, an annoying state to be in. But prefixes are probably a 90% solution for that sort of thing. I would imagine so, yeah. For me, it's definitely the case. Uh, it simplified code significantly. I could remove a lot of what, I, what I've written for uh, dynamic supervisors, and I could uh, refigure some of it for, uh, for just setting up customers. Uh a lot of actually, I end up using uh, dynamic repos to set up uh, new tenants. Uh, 
Yeah, so not, none of it was wasted, actually, because you had to learn how to use dynamic repos in the first place to make it to finish the, pro, uh, yeah. the feature. So one, one hint for the business development folks listening, when you want to when you want to sell for the extra zeros on the end, you use dynamic repos and you explain that there's some benefit to it. Add that bill. Yeah, that's the call for pricing option. So uh, one of the things I, I, I see, so I, we have linked in the docs in the show notes. Uh, check it out. There's a link to the Ecto docs that talks about what I, one thing I love about Ecto docs is like the guides, right? The how tos, the not just the API docs. And so Ecto has a great one under the little how tos of multi tenancy with query prefixes. And I, I love those. I, I think it's awesome. But uh, so one of the ideas is around, uh, you mentioned it, migrations. So if I have all of these different um, customers in separate uh, schemas, uh, in Postgres schemas, how do I run migrations? I have to run a, a migration on each one individually. Is that right? That's right. Um, so generally, this is, will be done when, when setting them up. Um, you can also, of course, ensure that your migrations have been run at app startup for any schemas you have when you've added new migrations. But yeah, this also made me look into uh, parts of Ecto that I had had no reason to uh, visit before, which is like Ecto Migrator, which is part of it. That's what runs your migrations normally. But there was yeah, a lot uh, more that I needed to do there than I've, I've ever tried before. Um, but all the tools are really there. Some of them are uh, a bit tricky to find, like the double underscore adapters thing. Uh, I, I wouldn't have uh, dared rely on that unless Jose actually told me, no, that's, that's a, what you're supposed to do. This is, <laughs> this is not internals. It's just, it's just the dynamic part of the, of the thing. But yeah, it's, um, it's generally... This means that migrations are part of your code now. Uh, and I do have some, um, I did end up setting up a bunch of helper uh, functions to detect if, um, for example, you've attempted to add a migration and you forgot to rename it to .ex instead of .exs, that would screw you up and your migration would not be counted among the real migrations. The module would not be found and it would be a bit vague uh, error-wise. So I make sure to throw an error and log the, the appropriate information because it's detectable. But, yeah. Do you also know, um, are there any sort of Elixir-based linters that make it easy to just add a linter rule that says no files with .exs in this directory? I don't, I don't actually know. I haven't checked. Yeah. Well, one of our upcoming guests is about uh, creating custom credo uh, checks. So you could so that'll write cover a custom credo check. Interesting. What I would want a custom credo check for in this case would be to make sure that in time the repo, uh, repo queries are made that they include a prefix to make sure the tenancy is handled correctly throughout the application. So I had a question. What, uh, what impacts both from a design perspective at a high level and also just uh, back-end level, uh, does this have on an administrative interface? Yeah, for, for my case, um, the application is intended to be uh, segmented by uh, the customer. So 
it would be subdomain separated by customer. So in my case, um, for the customer and their administration, uh, they would only know about their own tenancy and uh, no other customers. On our end, uh, it could potentially be a bit more complex. We haven't built out an admin system of any uh, of any size for this uh, particular product. Um, but I, I sort of imagine I sort of, you you would want to select what customer to work with at any given point uh, to avoid uh, to avoid confusion and to avoid uh, calls going uh, cross tenant so to speak because that's something you really want to avoid. Um, right. Also, just generally, when I do multi tenancy, I make sure I'm using UUIDs for IDs just as a as just a fallback. Definitely preferable. So, um, so user ID one or five or seven doesn't happen. Just happen to cross over from one customer to another, and you accidentally delete the wrong person. That's always unfortunate when that happens. That's what we call an incident. No, but I must say uh, the ectodocs are. Uh, very nice, uh, very easy to work with. I did encounter some minor issues um, with diving deep into all these things, and I reported them, and I think they were fixed within minutes because Jose apparently does not sleep, or we happen to be in the same time zone, that could be it. But yeah, uh, I think I contributed uh, one piece of documentation or another and uh, a few a few questions, a few issues, uh, at least one bug fix. Uh, at a certain point, I was digging down into the Erlang code server to see if we could... I, I don't even remember what the issue was. Yeah, oh, it was, it's when it was, you... Hey, I recompiled the same module again or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that was it. It was about, um, it was about migrations being loaded multiple times. Uh, I believe. And that means recompiling the same module and then you get a warning. And I wanted to see if we could avoid the warning and detect that we had already loaded it. Uh, but there's some, there are some good reasons to prevent that, uh, to not do it that way, uh, which was one of the reasons why I ended up adding the migrations into, into my application rather than loading them. So one of the things uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on is, you know, once you've had like a deep dive into something like normally as a developer, we're kind of just, we're dealing with the public interface, the just, you know, how do I make this work? And, and, I'm, and that's where I'm, that's my experience, like with plug or Ecto, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much just using it how it's described to be used. And then once you start really digging into it, then you get a whole different sense of the library. Is this well-written? Is it not well-written? How malleable is it? Or is this brittle? You know, after you've done this, like, where did you come away with feeling about Ecto? I think I became more comfortable with Ecto just in general and uh, found a bit more appreciation for the way it works and uh, the way the defaults are set up because they won't fit for everyone, but they're fairly flexible. And uh, there's always an escape hatch. There's always a way to reintroduce some of the complexity that it has abstracted away. Uh, I did not end up being a 
huge fan of the sandbox. Uh, it's incredibly useful. It makes tests fast. But damn, I was pulling hairs uh, trying to get those tests running uh, because there was just a bit too much um, futzing around to to just get it working and doing what I expected it to do. And uh, some of the shared versus versus other options um, were not entirely clear to me. It took a while before before I believe I grasped it. So. Have you heard of Atwood's Law? He says that anything that can be built in JavaScript eventually will be built in JavaScript. And that includes mobile apps. You can build awesome mobile apps and Apple TV and other apps with React Native. Come check us out every week as we talk about some of the ins and outs of building mobile apps with JavaScript and with React on React Native Radio. You can find it at reactnativeradio.com. I mean, sort of similar to that question around how you're feeling about Ecto now. I'm curious if you or really any of you guys have done multi-tenancy, you know, not in Elixir and not using Ecto and how those experiences compare or, you know, is there something about Elixir or something about Ecto that really lends itself to the multi-tenancy story? My, my thoughts on this coming from having done it in Ruby. Uh, I used apartment and I used Postgres schemas in Ruby and it's, it's generally the same conceptually. I do like, uh, I, I just prefer the Ecto style. I, I don't like active record is the easiest way of saying that. So, um, but I don't, I don't think that, I didn't feel like multi-tenancy made active record much worse. It just, uh, having, having the ability to pass in separate repos in Ecto has been uh, incredibly useful to me. And uh, I don't want to not have that. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really uh, worked with multi-tenancy for uh, for anything real at least since like when i worked with wordpress or maybe drupal 6 when there was this idea that you could run multiple customers in a single platform and that never went further than lab experiments on our end uh when i was at a web bureau because it it was messy it was really messy uh, so no particular deep experiences on the multi-tenancy part. I just figured it had to be doable. Uh, I expected Ecto to be able to handle it, or and if it didn't, I would have to drop down to something more close to the Postgres. Yeah, for me, um, I I've worked with. Uh, there was a Ruby library. I don't. I'm blanking on the name of it now. It's been years. Uh, and in that case, it was it was okay. It was it, you know there's just I think it's the same problem, just that you have this additional cognitive load of, I have to understand this problem because I can't, like, like Lars was describing, you can't just fully abstract it away. You have to be aware of it at some level, you know, at some level of consciousness. It's like, you have to be aware of it just as you're writing your code. But like one of the places I worked, one of the ways they solved it was like you authenticate. Uh, so this was where you're dealing with large institutions. Uh, or even groups of institutions, right? Like, so you imagine like uh, my kids are in a school district. And so you have a whole bunch of schools in a district, but the district is all managed together. So I might have the district as an organization. So when I log into the system, it might actually say, oh, I've authenticated who you are. Uh, I, I will direct you and bounce you to a different server. So like it might be, it might be like a subdomain dot, you know, kind of... Uh, way it's set up and then where that's directing me to is a different set of servers that are talking to a different you know database so it's 
totally blocked off that way. So it's not really the multi-tenant way. It's just, it's a different way of uh, fanning out the data, you know, just like totally isolating it and putting it onto different servers. So it's, it's not exactly this solution, but I think it's one that's helpful to be aware of and to think about if it's, if it matches your problem domain. And if, if I were implementing that solution today, I would use something like Kubernetes namespaces and I would use like a Helm operator and I would have a repo that I, when we had a new customer, I would push infrastructure in for them. And then I would just redirect to it. And you can set all that up such that like it actually creates the infrastructure, but that would be for a very heavy handed multi-tenancy thing. Right. Yeah. And then with, with, with big bucks on the other side of it though. Right. Yeah. Cause it's a big organization. They're paying a lot on a continual basis to have this as a, yeah. as a solution. Yeah. And uh, for this case, I of course was aiming more for a SaaS approach of we got to run this cheaply. <laughs> uh, so of course we, I don't really expect it to have a lot of volume, a lot of uh, high intensity requests and spinning up separate instances and VMs and uh, virtual servers for this would be an incredible overkill. Um, so rather they all share the same uh, infrastructure. Great. Well, I really appreciate this conversation, sharing your insights that you've gained along this journey. Um, is there anything else you want to mention before we close this topic out? Uh, sure. If the... Anyone wants to read up on this, it's at underjord.io or underjord.io, um, which is my blog where I continuously write mostly about Elixir, but also other things. Um, I do uh, mentorship and uh, coaching for uh, mostly inexperienced developers, but Anyone who's interested in uh, Elixir is welcome to get in touch. I'm happy to uh, help people get on their way. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, at Lavik. I try to stay active out there. <laughs> and we will need to put a link to those things in, your show note, in the show notes for this episode. Uh, we also do have a link to the three blog posts that we were mentioning. And uh, just so you know, because I think it's fun trivia, Undriord is underground. Uh, I, I happen to have, speak some Norwegian, but uh, so it's Norwegian, Swedish, or, or, and, and Danish are close enough that you can get by talking to each other a little bit. <laughs> well, Lars, I had a great time talking with you. Uh, so people know how to get in touch with you. Uh, check out the show notes to get his Twitter. Uh, let's go ahead and transition to picks. Sophie, do you want to go first? Yeah, I've got uh, the first one I'll share is actually the article that you shared with us before we uh, started our chat today, Mark, about Elixir style actors in Go. I was doing some light complaining about concurrency in Go and uh, you brought this up. So I will add that in so that folks can check it out. I haven't read it yet since it was only just brought to my attention, but I'm excited to give it a look. Uh, the other pick I have is a recipe that I also haven't tried yet, but I've heard good things and I'm very excited. So there's a really good uh, bolognese lasagna recipe on this site, Smitten Kitchen. I don't know if anybody's heard of it, um, but I love Smitten Kitchen because she's actually just like a lady with a very small New York apartment. Hello, same as me. And she puts out these really great recipes that still work in you know, her space and all the constraints that that has. So if you've never cooked a lasagna, try it. Awesome. Josh, how about you? 
Yeah, so I have uh, two picks today. One is uh, incredibly self-serving, and that is the first one that I will go with. That is DBA, DBA, DBA.com. Yes. Um, so that's my new consultancy. And we are, we're focusing on uh, product, helping with products and uh, helping with sort of internal projects, kind of, kind of larger projects. So we're taking on, we, fought, we just got to like actual stability with the five of us that there are. And so we're, we're expanding. So we're looking for new projects and uh, we do a lot of stuff. We do Elixir, Elm, Flutter, and also just anything else. Lots of, lots of Ruby.net. I've, I've done Java plenty. I don't seek it out, but it's comfy. Anyway, so there's that. And then there's also um, just Flux CD. So Flux CD is a GitOps continuous deployment tool for a Kubernetes cluster. So what those, the setup that I have is I have a Terraform uh, project that just spins up a Google, cluster, a Google, Google Kubernetes cluster and then deploys Flux CD on it and points it to a Git repo, our Flux CD Git repo. And then that contains a whole lot of Kubernetes manifests. And it will make sure that it deploys those things for me at all times and keeps them updated and I can make changes. And it, it, so it's full GitOps for that cluster, basically. And then I use the Helm operator to bring in Helm releases. So Helm releases are like larger collections of things for doing something like deploying an ERP system or WordPress or whatever. And I have KubeDB set up so you can spin up like actual databases and reference them. It's really, really cool. And using Flux CD as like the starter point for just having GitOps in your Kubernetes cluster uh, means that uh, your, your cluster is just really good. Like you end up with lots of really cool tools. Anyway, so that's the cool thing that I've been playing with. Nice. All right, I've got two picks. Uh, one, uh, for those who can see my little video, my, my friends here, um, it's this little device. Uh, I got a link to it in the show notes it, on Amazon. It is a roll and spin auto start gyroscopic wrist and forearm exerciser. So it, what it is, is it has this little weight inside that's, uh, you can kind of wind it up and then it like starts spinning. And it's a, a weight that spins in a circular motion. So it's creating momentum. And then you can kind of just twisting your hand, kind of uh, cause it to accelerate. And as this uh, weight rotates, it makes it wobble or shake depending on how fast it gets going. And that just makes it so your hand, wrist, and forearm have to actually work to hold it. And so it's really kind of a strange sensation. You kind of look at it and you're like, how the heck does that actually work? Uh, but it's fun. Uh, and what it lets you do is it, I, I realized that, you know, I need to work on some forearm strength, um, you know, just in terms of I, I type a lot. Uh, and I started, you know, kind of playing around with the piano a little bit. And I was realizing this is kind of, it's a different motion that I'm accustomed to. And it's kind of sore. So I need to focus on that. So a friend had it at work. So I tried it and I liked it. So that's one. Um, another one that is a little bit more programming oriented is, you know, as you're writing docs for your project and your code base, sometimes it's helpful to have a little, like a, a, a flow, you know, to do a little flow diagram. And since X docs are so awesome and they're visible and you can expose them, uh, one of the things I found was this project called ASCII flow. And it is a flow chart diagram that you can create in a browser. Uh, so it's all browser based. Uh, but it actually outputs ASCII characters. Uh, so you can like click and like kind of drag and move the little things around and do little arrows and, 
and it, it actually does it all in ascii characters and so you can just pull that in and plop it in your docs so i thought that was pretty cool um so that's it for me Lars. how about you yeah i recently had reason to integrate uh some client products with uh, stripe and i know i saw a notice that stripe released the cli so i figured i'd take a look at that because there was was no tests for this uh, the the existing stripe integration did not have proper tests so i wanted to improve the coverage there and uh, one thing with stripe is uh, webhooks and webhooks and test environments are a bit of a and a nuisance let's call it that um, so stripe cli does among other things have a command that stripe listen which lets you forward webhooks to your um, webhooks for your test environment on stripe to your local development environment which was incredibly useful to get automated testing for um, for the stripe integration so that's one um, I was happy with the developer in development experience for Stripe in general. They, they're known for, for trying to, uh, cater to developers. I think so. Uh, well done. Uh, the other one would be, hmm, I'm picking between two here. It's tricky. Uh, did you see the article I wrote about Lumen? Uh, I did not. Have you have any of you looked into the Lumen project? It's an incredibly ambitious thing that Dockyard is uh, pulling together. It is. Yeah, or, I saw their. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say I saw their talk at uh, Elixir Prompt. They, I think they opened it up yeah. uh, back in August, but I haven't had any opportunities to look into it further. I, I have listened to them uh, kind of talk about it on, uh, like, uh, I think they're on Elixir Talk uh, podcast, and they they're talking about it there, or. Maybe it was Smart Logics, Elixir Wizards podcast. I don't know. I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of Elixir stuff. So. A lot of Elixir podcasts. But, but yeah, it's awesome. We have a good community. Yeah, they've done the rounds a bit. So it's about running uh, Elixir and Erlang in the browser using WebAssembly and without porting the entirety of the Beam, which is an incredibly ambitious and very wise, I think, approach to it. Uh, I'm incredibly excited about what it could mean. I'm not the biggest fan of the current JavaScript ecosystem. Uh, I don't hate it, but I would much prefer something simpler, honestly. <laughs> Mostly simpler. But uh, I ended up doing a small write-up about it that ended up on Hacker News. And then, and then there was a lot of discussion about the Lumen name already being taken by X number of <laughs> projects, but it was generally well received. Um, so that's probably my pick. Uh, it's a really, really ambitious, really, really interesting project. I recommend following that channel on Slack. They continuously discuss the, the progress. And um, if you want to try it, uh, my example should still roughly work unless they broke it. <laughs> I think they actually used the example I, I uh, put together when they presented at a later conference. So that was fun. Cool. Thank you for sharing. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, Lars. I appreciate you taking the time to share this information with us and your insights. Um, well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Elixir Mix. And scene. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.